Welcome to the program, Woke Up, where we amplify the voices of those whom today's critical social justice movement and woke ideology have seduced. They realized they were being led to a place they did not want to be and woke up to tell their story. Now the host, Michael Ballantyne. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Woke Up. And one of the things I was just thinking about today on my way here was this book that I read uh, several years ago. It was written by a Czechoslovakian author. His name was Baklav Havel, and he was in the communist regime under the Iron Curtain. And he wrote this book, and it's, it's basically, it was called The Power of the Powerless. And oftentimes in our society, we feel like we don't know what to do. There's chaos. We see that there's things in our society that are changing. It's not what it was before, but what can we do? And his the, the overall thesis of his book, which really transformed in many ways the thought process in all Czechoslovakia, and he ultimately became the first elected president at the fall of the Iron Curtain, was to live not by lies. And so what you do have, what we all have is the power of truth. And when there's pressures on us to fudge the truth or go into the gray areas for convenience, it does open us up to problems and ultimately possibly uh, takes us to a place where we don't want to be. So Everyone listening and uh, uh, going forward, I think we all have that. We all have the power of the truth and to live not by lies. And that is the power of the powerless. And so I'm real excited today because uh, I've uh, had the, we're going to have the opportunity to listen to a beautiful young woman. And she's been through an incredible journey. And, and she's going to share like the process of, of her life leading up to some of the decisions she's made and where she's at today and how she's landed. And uh, I just want to Give a big welcome to Camille Kiefel uh, from Portland, Oregon. And so, Camille, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Michael. Yeah, and so, and just serving it up to you, and maybe you could just tell our audience, uh, just open up your heart, whatever level you feel comfortable, like where you've been the last 10, 15, 20 years, and where you're at today, and and uh, some of the, the incredible things that you've been through. Yeah, so I've been through a lot. Like, I think that I had, you know, my I had kind of like a my parents had like this really rough divorce. And I think that that's where things really started. And then from there, like I became pescatarian and my health declined. And then I was really struggling. And I was introduced to gender ideology and um, really um, through critical gender theory through the university system when I became a woman studies minor in college. And then from there, I believed I was non-binary in 2016. And I got um, top surgery. And then I realized that I was never non-binary, that there was a disconnect with my body and trauma had played a huge role in that. So that's really kind of the basis of my story. And um, yeah, I'm really interested in talking with you today about like how gender ideology and also gender critical gender theory has um, played a negative impact on my life and how I think a lot of people mean well, and that's why it appeals to them. But there's just it's just, it's not a healthy approach to deal dealing with issues. So as a child growing up, did you not feel comfortable as a female? Were you uh, considering that maybe you were really a man born in a woman's body or, and nature had dealt you a bad set or like, what were you, what were you thinking prior to going to college and studying uh, a critical gender theory? So part of it was, well, when growing up, I actually didn't really have the gender issues. It wasn't until sixth grade when there was this traumatic event that happened and it impacted, you know, I just had trauma around my sexuality and around being a woman in sixth grade. So that's when this all started. And from there, were you abused at that age or did something? It 
what happened was that, well, a couple of things happened. One of them was that my, my father trying to protect me told me how men his age talked sexually about girls my age. And he was trying, I think he was trying to get me to dress more modestly and to be, you know, I, I think that it was well-intentioned, but it ended up uh, making me really nervous. And then on top of that, in sixth grade, my my best friend had been raped by her brother. And so that had a huge impact on me. And it just impacted my relationship with my gender. And then I ended up, at that time, identifying more with boys for like anime and such. And it just, that's that's where it really started was back in sixth grade. I went to uh, Portland State University. And that was because, was it particularly because of what you wanted to study? Or was that because of uh, geographic uh, proximity? to your home? It was, um, partially it was cost. Um, I actually wasn't quite sure what I wanted to get into. And so that was part of the issue as well. Okay. So then at that point, had you had, uh, experience, uh, dating boys at all, like in high school or were you dating in, in college at all? Or were you, okay. And were you like studying people like Judith Butler, who I attributed to being like uh, one of the founders of gender studies, were you like studying their writings or stuff? Or were there certain classes? Like, what were they teaching you that that you latched onto that that uh, was uh, alluring to you? You know, I read, um, let's see here, Naomi Wolf's, I can't remember the, the title of the book now, but I read that, like, it was like a, the beauty myth or something. I, I can't quite remember, but I was reading a lot of works, like they would particularly have us read essays from different authors it's kind of interesting thinking back on it because there was this focus on critical gender theory, but also critical race theory. So that was kind of coming into it. But it's interesting because they don't really like I never heard anybody say critical gender theory or critical race theory while I was a woman studies uh, minor. So I think that that's interesting that they're not even saying that. Like, I also never heard the heard. Um, I know people are talking about Marxism and how these theories are based on Marxism, but they're not, they don't sell it as Marxism. Like they're not introducing this as like, this is a Marxist way of thinking. It's just, that's, it just kind of like woven into to the theory itself. Were, were you exposed to like uh, feminist ideology or radical feminist ideology at all? Or was it more along the lines of uh, uh, the uh, gender? It's I mean, yeah, we were introduced to it. It's kind of like odd because it's almost like it's like maybe throwing the kitchen sink at it is the best way to describe it because they just they throw all these ideologies and uh, subsections of thoughts in together. And so you don't know which which ideology you're getting if that makes sense, or like, um, not ideology, but like for radical feminism, like those, that subsection of feminism, you, you don't know necessarily which, which you're getting because it's like, you know, maybe there's some conservative feminism in, in the, what you're reading, but they're, they're not actually separating that out to you. And I think that that's part of the issue too, is that, you know, they, they have all these different schools of thought and there's going to be clashing with each other because you, you're, you're going to have people who will have different goals and it's, it's just, it's not always going to mesh. Yeah. You know, actually I was reading the communist manifesto. I, you know, sometimes I have a hard time falling asleep. So I read some of the Marx and Engels uh, political economic theories. And so I was re actually reading the communist manifesto. And you know, what struck me is the very first, sentences, and I'm going to misquote it, but it basically says this. It says, the history of the world hitherto now is the same. It is Lord against serf, uh, plebeian against patron, uh, journeyman and guildman, and uh, in, in a word, oppressor against oppressed. And they both go to battle until both sides are destroyed or, or the oppressed uh, overcome. And so you see this, uh, and it really struck me because, you know, as we look at the culture wars now and 
in now that people are studying a, a lot, like the roots of, of these ideologies, it really has this uh, dialectic approach where it paints everybody as the oppressed class or the oppressor class. You know, the, the males are the uh, toxic masculinity uh, is the source of all problems and the females are the oppressed or the black man in particular is the oppressed uh, over with the white man or the cisgender, which is, you know, the, a new term uh, or heteronormativity oppresses the, the gender queer. And so it's, it's this uh, battle to really pit people against one another. And it, to me, it's, you just see the manifest evidence of what's happening is, is abject hatred, you know, uh, uh, and and really a, a war, and it applies to all of it. It seems like it seems like there's uh, it, they're all kind of tied together in this uh, cultural Marxism because, as we know, in the West, uh, Marxism did not take, and one of the reasons was the strength of family, the strength of the church. Uh, there was a guy named Antonio Gramsci who was an Italian communist. He uh, he wrote the Prison Diaries, and he talked about cultural hegemony and. Uh, and that those need to be broken down for communism to really rule. And so you, it seems like it's really grabbed hold of these ideologies in the university of the oppressor oppressed dialectic, which is I, I'm just seeing that it's causing so many problems and so, so much uh, attack on, on every aspect of what we've historically known to be true a war on family, fatherhood, institutions, the, you know, the military. And, and it's just, uh, it just seems like then this, uh, postmodern, nothing has meaning woke activism fuels, fuels it. And it's causing so many sociological problems and people like yourself become victims to it. And the consequences are real. There is pain. And so I don't know. I mean, I'm just sharing some thoughts that I had, some of the things that I've been reading and learning recently. And I was wondering if you had any, any comments about, about that, if you felt like that agenda was being pushed in the university or what your experiences were with that. Yeah. I think that part of it is that you have people like me who are really struggling emotionally and who aren't getting help. So I think that it's also a wider issue as well, because mm. I had um, like before I, I, when I identified or thought I was like non-binary, I had at that point before doing the top surgery had done like 20 years of talk therapy I had done EMDR or including like EMDR, DBT. And so I, I don't remember what EMDR means, but DBT is dialectical behavior therapy, um, which is a, really a skill-based therapy. And so I, and then I had done two rounds of TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation therapy, uh, which is a cousin to ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, but not as severe. But I was really struggling within the current system. And that's, and when I got better through my physical health, then it was like, that's what I need all along was that I, I needed to be better physically, like that was the root cause. And so my concern is that people like myself who are in that vulnerable state are being sold this idea of you're, you're depressed because of sexism, because of transphobia, because of racism, when it's like, it could be an underlying issue, like with myself. <laughs> Um, that just needs to be addressed. And it, d during those talk therapies and uh, like you, you said you had, you had some trauma, obviously it's in, in sixth grade. I, I know that EMDR, I've actually done it. I thought it was pretty fascinating. Uh, did you uh, find relief doing that or did you, did you feel like it was like, uh, 
not really getting at the issues or how would you evaluate? It's, it sounds like it wasn't a perfect panacea for you, but did you find that talk therapy and some of those other treatments, were they, were they helpful for you in terms of uh, wholeness and, and health? You know, they weren't helpful to me. And I think that that's part of, part of that again, is that what I really needed was to address my physical health. And this is something that I think is being really overlooked. I, yeah, it just, I, I do really think that we need to look at the physical health aspect because I know like I did hyperbaric auction therapy and I was part of a case study for that. And for that study, I did like a questionnaire, like a self questionnaire. And I went from mild, no, what was it? Yeah, I think it was mild to severe. No, it was um, moderate to severe anxiety to mild anxiety through 60 treatments. And then my ADHD went from like 75 to seven. I don't remember the exact number, but it was remarkable how much that treatment helped me. And so I really honed in on the the holistic health because I was surprised that it helped me that much. And, you know, I mean, I started eating meat again. I was pescatarian for about 10 years and that had an impact on me. And it wasn't until I saw Michaela Peterson, I'm like, oh, she seems pretty stable. Like I'm going to, I'm going to try eating meat again. And that was probably good because my ferritin levels were really low, but I feel like there's this sort of, we're overlooking the physical aspect of it. And even though kind of go back to your question, I feel that, you know, I had, because I had all the skills from doing all these years of therapy, but it, it doesn't like, it doesn't mean anything if you don't have like the physical aspect as well going for you. So you were, uh, obviously struggling with your, your physical health and you were looking for relief uh, with some of the mental health issues that you were facing. And so you go to a university and you're learning these new things and, and you're, you're, you're taking it in, you're, you're internalizing it. And it seems like you were obviously drawn toward, uh, toward uh, these thought processes uh, in hope of finding relief. Maybe you were, you were feeling like uh, being non-binary and then this went on for a period of time. And then you said that you were led into uh, top surgery. And so why don't you take us through that process of, you know, being a, a younger woman in the university, uh, struggling physically and mentally, looking for relief. And, you know, what was your process and 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 to lead you to such a dramatic uh, steps that, that you've taken, that you took? Yeah. So I, I know that those are a little bit of a different time. So like, I mean, I went to university in 2010 and I, and I do remember one of the professors, like, implying that we were depressed because of sexism. So, I mean, there was definitely this sort of push of, like, you're, you're miserable because of you're the oppressed, right? And so, like, I was introduced there to the, that, this idea that you can be this third gender or, like, non-binary or, like, a gender outside of that. But the, the thing is, is that nobody talked about the fact that there is no biological equivalent to non-binary. Like it, it's it's very it's very odd, and yet everybody like the Medicaid considered my surgery the top surgery medical necessity. So it's it's just it's very odd because there's that sort of like not thinking things through because there's such a focus on albeit well meaning there's this focus on we need to take care of those who are are hurting. You know the idea of like those are who are oppressed. So there's that fixation on that. And then it's and because there's such a fixation on that, it's not looking at things objectively in that, you know, like I was saying, like that I that you can be non-binary and have the surgery that would that there's no equivalent in nature for. And how long was the process from when you first uh, uh, had the thought that I'm non-binary and to actually going through with a double mastectomy? Like what, what was that process like, you know? 
you, you had to have had some self doubts. Uh, you know, this is permanent. Uh, is this the right thing? I mean, what, what were you thinking about? Like what was going through your mind and how long was that process? Yeah. So I, I started believing I was non-binary around 2016 when I seen a gender therapist, um, which again, wasn't objective. And she she actually believed in otherkin, which should have been like this red flag, but um, which otherkin, from my understanding, is like you believe you you think that you're an animal or you it's this sort of like other identity with like animals. So that should have been like a red flag. But, you know, it's again, it's sort of like, well, you know, you, you just feel like that when you're in that ideology, like, well, there are people who like, you know, th- again, that sort of oppressed, like, you know, well, maybe I'm wrong or like, it's just like this sort of like second guessing rather than thinking of things critically. But so yeah, I identified or I believed I was non-binary for years. And then I asked my doctor about top surgery. And then they connected me with these two gender, like mental health professionals. And then from there, um, within months, it was like, because I got my first letter in like May, the second in July, and then I had the surgery in August. And so it was very, I'm surprised that it went that quickly. But the reality is that they are pushing these through rather quickly. Did, did they prescribe testosterone? Did you take any uh, male hormones at all? Or I did not. Um, and that's kind of like the weird thing about this too, is that it's so like, it's like the patient is the one steering this instead of, you know, the doctor being like, okay, you have gender dysphoria, this is the treatments you need. It's more of like, well, I'm non-binary. I want to do this, but I don't want to do that. And so it's it's very odd because it's very customized to the patient, and yet it's considered this medical necessity. So it's a very weird place to be in. Is there any other areas of uh, where doctors just do whatever the patient wants and they push whatever direction that's in the, the mind of the patient? That just seems like a, a bizarre way to practice medicine, especially somebody who's, as you said, you know, you've been struggling with depression or uh trauma for for a long long time it seems like they would want to work on really strengthening you there versus something so dramatic it just seems like it's just bizarre to me just from an objective standpoint yeah it is it is it is odd it's it's not i i don't think it's ethical but it's i mean it's it's been kind of weird because it's like even kind of like getting out of that like wow, this is like really weird this happened to me is because that ideology has influenced us so much and influenced our medical system so much Mm. instead of looking at this from like, okay, here's a patient who struggles with, who's had a history of struggling with suicidal ideation. She's had struggled with major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, ADHD, like has all these comorbidities and she's wanting this like very drastic, you know, invasive surgery because she has discomfort with part of her body like maybe there's something else going on but it's i think part of it is our medical system doesn't look at other health issues as well and it's just because i and this is kind of like an interesting thing i've been thinking about is you know because women i've I've heard this like quite a bit like women think that doctors are sexist or they're not taking them seriously and it i think part of it too might be that our medical system isn't properly addressing issues that women tend to have which maybe that's again like chronic health issues inflammation maybe autoimmunity like mm. because i was never checked for autoimmunity before the surgery as well so it, it's just like the, it's unfortunate because it's that sort of separation between mental and physical health instead of looking at this like, well, maybe the physical health issues are causing the mental health issues. 
Interesting. Now, d- during that time, in your, you're in your 20s, you know, you've already been through uh, puberty, obviously, for a good decade. Did you uh, ever aspire to be a mom or do you do you now to give birth and, and to and the, and the breastfeed and, the, and to connect with the baby on that level? Or is that something you, that's just not for you? Yeah, it, I mean, it was it was kind of like odd because like, bro, like through my 20s, I had no interest in like even early 30s because I'm, I'm 32 now. So like I had no interest in having kids and then it's just like my, my physical health started getting better. And then I was like, Oh, I want a family now. And I'm just, and now it's just sort of like, well, I'm, I'm older, like yikes. <laughs> like I wish that I had known this sooner, but like, like, but now I can't, I can never breastfeed. Like I can never have that, that connection with the child and I can never, yeah, it's, it's just like, I mean, kind of a little bit off topic, but I, I don't fit clothing the same way. So it's impacted how like, mm. I like I can't like wear certain dresses or if I do like I know they're just going to look a little off because I don't fill them out but that's the reality is that I I mean I never had any sort of interest I never had a serious relationship before I did the surgery and it wasn't until like my physical health improved that I was like oh I do want a family I do want kids I do want to breastfeed and I can't I can't do that well you may have children and I'm sure that uh, your healing will may not in, entail breastfeeding. You might miss out on that part, but I'm sure if uh, uh, you're going to be a mother one day, if that happens, then uh, they'll, there'll be healing in that. And I, and I definitely believe that there's redemption and healing and wholeness because we all make mistakes and we all look back on certain decisions we made. And then you look back and say, well, I wish I wouldn't have done that, but I'm, I learned something from it and I'm better because of it. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that's uh, really, really got me going last week, I saw like a parts of an interview from the assistant director of health and human services, Admiral uh, Rachel Levine, who is now a presenting as a female and is really pushing on children inv- invasiveness in terms of puberty blockers and, and our government uh, from the top down is really pushing this agenda on young people and that doctors should be proactive in this. And what really bothered me about because they love their children, which is the bond between a father and, or a mother and their child is something so incredible. But yet this person who has a certain level of gender dysphoria, and is, but is now pushing this ideology on children. And as you know, like they teach us pronoun uses, but then it's transitory. Sometimes people present as male or female or they, or, and then sometimes it changes. And the human brain, I mean, a 15 year old, a 14 year old can't make those decisions. You know, our human brain doesn't stop developing until 25. And so the same government that says, follow the science, follow the science. Well, let's follow the science and leave these kids alone. And, and, and why are we pushing this on children in such a way that there's consequences that they will have to live with the rest of their life. And possibly they may just naturally grow out of. And so I'm, I'm, I'm angry with our government. I'm angry with this, uh, what I see as an agenda. And so I, I don't know like what your feeling is about what's going on with children in America that, and this whole concept, I don't know if you read the book uh, by Abigail Shriver, uh, Ir- Irreversible Damage. Have you, are you familiar with that book? Yeah, I've read it. Yeah, it's an excellent mm-hmm. book. I, th- I thought that she was so clear. And, and this concept of, uh, what is it, rapid onset gender dys- dysphoria, you know, this like it comes on all of a sudden, presents later and the social contagion aspect of it. And we're not, we're not even looking at these issues, but yet proposing very invasive procedures on children that there's consequences and poor parents are kind of, well, I want the best for my child. And, you know, how can I really love my child perfectly and help them uh, because they're obviously struggling. 
And so I, I'd like, that's my opinion, but I'd like to hear if you agree with me, if I'm missing something, or if you'd like to add to that, like what your thought is about this agenda that's permeating our society targeted toward young people. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of people who are meaning well in this, but the, the thing is, and I think that part of this comes from a lot of these people are thinking, well, well, because this is what was said to me from a couple of my therapists was that, well, you must be non-binary because we used to think being gay was a form of mental illness. And so you being non-binary is not a form of mental illness. Like that was sort of the, the correlation that these therapists had drawn. And so I feel that part of this has stemmed from people kind of connecting this to the to like the gay rights movement. But the problem is, is that it's, you know, which many, unfortunately, many of these these kids who believe that they are trans are actually gay or lesbian. And so then they're doing these unnecessary surgeries uh, because they're, they're being encouraged to do that because they're not gender conforming. And, and so it's, it's, I, I think a lot of people meant well, but it, it's, again, it's this ideology that's, you know, not looking at this from this objective standpoint. And then you have trans, which is considered like the most oppressed group. So like when they're, when people say like, well, you're having these gay and lesbian individuals, um, you're having them like, tr like being like kind of like the idea of like transing away the gay, like you're having them do these surgeries when they're actually gay and lesbian, but then those get dismissed because they're not the most oppressed minority. And like when it comes to to the kids who are struggling, probably because of mental health issues, uh, most likely, they're not looking at the fact that there are other factors, like, again, like, they, they, you know, when you have, like, somebody like ADHD or autism, like, you're a little bit different. Are you being, like, picked on or bullied or, you know, and then, again, with the gay and lesbian, are, are these kids being, like, picked on because they're gay and lesbian or, like, because they're gendered on conforming? And then instead of, like, making them, putting that in that, that box of being, you must be gender conforming, you must be, like, the opposite sex or you know then there's the whole non-binary thing too I, I think that again it's just a lot of people mean well and a lot of these kids will just grow out of it like they will grow out of it and then the other ones that won't grow out of it which is my concern as well is that they we need to look at other issues going on like the physical health issues because the reality is that like in Abigail Shire's book, how she talked about this is that some of these kids have these issues and they grow up and they still believe that they're they're trans, even though they have this underlying health issue or they're gay. Yeah, I think it's just it's sad because these kids are dealing with a lot of issues that are not being looked into and that this is just a very complex issue that's been very um, politicized. And, and since you're, uh, tell us about the process after your chest surgery or your double mastectomy, like you did that, uh, were you satisfied initially? Were you feeling like this is uh, really good for me or what, what happened? What was the process? Uh, like how long ago did you detransition and, and like what, what was, once you did the chest surgery up until now, can you just take us through like what uh, has been going on within you uh, on an emotional and psychological level? Yeah. So when I first got the surgery, like I remember thinking that this was, this was good. Like this is what I needed. And then I, like, I remember when, she, when the surgeon took the bandages off that I had a lot of mixed feelings. Like I felt like I should be happier, but I didn't feel that way. And then like, I, I think part of it was that I was, I developed a lot of health complications after the surgery. And so how long ago was this? Um, it was August twenty seventh, twenty twenty. Okay, so it's just short, just over two years ago, and and so so there are consequences. What were some of the consequences that you were facing that you had? Yeah, so I 
developed Raynaud syndrome, which is like your capillaries shrink and you have discoloration with your extremities. I started getting bony prominences. So like this knuckle, I don't know if you can tell, is like bigger. Mm. I'm trying to like do this. Like, okay, it's yeah. not going to focus, but pretty much this one's bigger than the other one. Yeah, this one's bigger than the other one. But I, I developed tinnitus after the surgery. Um, That's ringing of the ears? Is that... Yep, yep. I developed tinnitus. And, and then I was like, I have issues with, I, I bruise very easily now after the surgery and I have issues with skin discoloration in general. So yeah, I developed all these health issues and that's really been the focus the last two years was working on that because what happened was that the doctors took me seriously at first. And then after they thought I had psychosomatic fever, they stopped, they stopped taking me seriously. And so then I had to look at a more holistic approach because they just wanted me to see um, therapist again. And since I had done 20 years of therapy, I knew I was like, yeah, that's not the answer. So then I ended up looking into holistic health as a way to, to try and mitigate these symptoms. And then I was surprised when my, my mental health got better. So that's, that's pretty much the story behind that. And, and during this time, were you, and just, I just don't know what I don't know. So were you presenting as a man or were you intentionally being like male and female or like, like how were you presenting yourself to the world were you, uh, during that period? subsequent to the surgery? Yeah. So I was, I was presenting more androgynous. So like I had very short hair. I had, um, I was wearing like men's t-shirts and such. And, and like, I'd always wear like jeans and such and like never, never skirt, but just mainly, mainly more androgynous, maybe androgynous masculine. And now you are obviously presenting as you were born as a, as a, as a biological female. And so how long did you wait to decide and say, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I'm going to be who I was made to be or to, to live my life normally in the body, the way it's created to be. Yeah. So I, about a year and a half after the surgery, I, I, rem I remember being like, I don't like, I had some inkling probably a little, little bit before that when I did some of the, the body works, body work, I, I was like talking to my practitioner a little bit, like, could we work on some gender stuff um, around that? Like for, there was like, a, I think it's like Nutripad allergy eliminate elimination technique and you can do gender so I was like you know what I, I know I have this history of gender stuff like can we do that a little bit and so she did and so I had like a little bit of an inkling around it but then it wasn't until I like it wasn't until probably about a year and a half after the surgery where I was like you know I don't think I'm non-binary I think I'm actually a woman and it was just this kind of like weird moment but I was also emotionally stable enough to be able to handle that but um yeah it's just that that's kind of um, how that ended up. And and now uh, you're, you're involved with uh, uh, using your voice. You're speaking out. What what types of things are you doing now? Uh, and, and you're involved with them. What's your passion going forward? And and how do you want to use your experience and your story? What what are your what are your objectives? What what really gets you up in the morning? So. For me, um, right now, like, I mean, I, I spoke at the Florida Board of Medicine hearing about uh, and, and just shared my story so that there can be more awareness around detransitioners. And then I also submitted like I wasn't able to to read at the second hearing, but I did submit another paper asking more looking into like autoimmunity and inflammation. And so what really keeps me going is is wanting to bring awareness to the physical health aspect and to look into that and to find these commonalities to prevent mm. what happened to me to happening to other um, girls and young women or yeah, girls and women. Is there uh, you know, we're taught that people will be totally happy and they'll, they'll find fulfillment and, and be the greatest thing in the world once they 
transition. Now, do you, what would you say to that? And I don't know if there's evidence-based studies that you could refer to, or just anecdotally, the detransition community, it seems like that's growing pretty quickly. Do you have any support from them or ways you can connect and identify? What's that community like? And, and do you have any sense on that? Yeah. So for, I guess to kind of answer the first question. So like transitioning will not improve your mental health in the way that it's being advertised it's really like, it's important that people work on their mental health if they're even considering mm. transitioning and that to resolve those issues before, because it, it is being sold as like this sort of like, you know, perfect thing, but you're also doing these very invasive surgeries. And you're also, I mean, a lot of people don't, There, a lot of this is experimental because we don't know what the impacts on the body will be. Like I know of a couple detransitioned women and they'll talk about how if they talk too long because they've taken tea, that their vocal cords will will start hurting. So, I mean, it's just like you do anything to the body, you don't know what that cascade of effects are, are going to be. So really, my, I guess to start off with would be to make sure that the underlying health and mental health issues, or I guess physical health and mental health issues are addressed. And then what was, um, sorry, what was the second question again? Uh, I was referring to the... Uh the community at large, like the satisfaction rate of transitioning and then detransitioning. And it seems like there's a lot of people that are coming forward saying that it wasn't the best decision for them. And it wasn't uh, the, and I was wondering if you get support from the detransitioning community or if they're, what your comments might be about this particular segment of the population. Yeah. So I I've gotten a lot of support from the detrans community. I think part of it too is, and I'm going to be honest because I had like, I have CPT, I had CPTSD, which is resolved now from being in activist circles, particularly like my time. And like when I was a women's studies minor, so I was very hesitant to be a part of the, the detrans community, but everybody there, like I I'm surprised about how much I've connected with them. And I think part of it is that a lot of us were thinking the same way. Like we still, we were impacted by that ideology. And then we realized that, oh, this ideology isn't for us. And that there's damaging aspects of this ideology. So I think that because we all had that similar experience, like there's that sort of um, connection there that we have. And yeah, I've just, there's, it's been very supportive from everybody I've met. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to be a part of the community. You know, I, I just pulled out a, a letter that I found fascinating. I don't know if you ever, you said you went to Portland State. If you ever came across a guy named uh, Peter Bogosian, if that's how you pronounce his name, Peter Bogosian, have you ever heard of him? Or was he a teacher of yours? You, are you familiar with him at all? I, I am familiar with him. I did not take any classes by him though. Well, I find him, I, I have followed him for quite some time. And uh, there's a woman named Helen Pluckrose and uh, James Lindsay, who, who's had a, a profound, a profound effect on my thought processes. And uh, they did these uh, grievance papers, grievance hoax papers, just showing, uh, exposing like the, the agenda at the university system nationwide and some of these organizations. And they just made up a bunch of crap and they got it published. And, and it turned out it was, they were just doing it in order to expose that this is not really science, it's ideology. And so Peter Bogosian is a free thinker and he was a professor at Portland State, which is a very woke college campus in California, uh, in, or- in Oregon. And it really struck me, his uh, his uh, resignation letter. And so, I'll, and he just wrote this 
several months ago. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's kind of long. He cites specific ways of mistreatment by the university, but I'll just read some of the highlights. He says, my university sacrificed ideas for ideology. So today I quit. The more I spoke out against the illiberalism that has swallowed Portland State University, the more retaliation I faced. But by brick by brick, the university has made intellectual exploration impossible. It has transformed a bastion of free inquiry into social justice factory, whose only inputs were race, gender, and victimhood, and whose only outputs were grievance and division. Students at Portland State are not being taught to think, rather they are being trained to mimic the moral certainty of ideologues. Faculty and administrators have abdicated the university's truth-seeking mission and instead drive intolerance of divergent beliefs and opinions. This has created a culture of offense where students are now afraid to speak openly and honestly. Uh, the more I read the primary source material produced by critical theorists, the more I suspected uh, that their conclusions reflected the postulates of an ideology not insights based on evidence. And it became increasingly clear to me that the incidents of illiberalism I had witnessed over the years were not just isolated events, but the of an institution-wide problem. The more I spoke about these issues, the more retaliation I faced. Uh, Portland State University has failed in fulfilling this duty. In doing so, it has failed not only its students, but the public that it's, th that supports it. While I'm grateful to uh, for having the opportunity to have taught at Portland State for over a decade, it has become clear to me that this institution is no place for people who intend to think freely or explore ideas. And uh, it's pretty stinging rebuke of the institution. And uh, it seemed like uh, some of the ideologies uh, affected you as well. And so I just didn't know if you had anything you'd like to add to that or uh, for what uh, Professor Bogosian said on his way out the door. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's sad because, I mean, it's just that that was my university too. So it's like, um, it's, it's, it's sad to that it was that it's really gender ideology has taken that over that critical gender theory has taken that over that um, critical race theory has taken taken over the university system. I, I think that's something interesting, which I, I just made me think of this, but you know, they actually kind of knew it was a little bit of an issue. Like, and I think that there are people within the women's studies department knew there was an issue, but because they're trapped within the ideology, they can't get out of it. So they, and I think that this shows up like in cult, call out culture, because I was talking to um, my professor and I said, you know, I felt bad about liking horror movies, like, right. And so I was like, I feel bad, like, but I really like horror movies and it's just like, which is interesting because then there's like feminists who like horror movies and stuff and talk about how feminist, how feminist horror movies are. <laughs> but there's this sort of like self deprecating aspect to these sort of ideologies. And then there's this sort of bullying that goes on. And I was talking to my professor about this and she said, you know, I know that this is an issue, but she felt like she couldn't talk about it. So it, it's interesting to me because you have this ideology that's, that's, that's cult-like because cults, ideologies, you can't have a cult that's out of an ideology. So this is, this is a cult that's going on right now. And that you have people within that cult who know that there's something wrong, but because they're stuck within that framework of that ideology, they can't actually get themselves out of it because in order to get yourself out of the ideology, you have to look outside of the ideology itself. But you can't because the ideology, if you're going outside the ideology, then you're problematic, you're right wing, you're all these horrible things. And so it, it's just it's sad because it's a very difficult thing to, to get out of as well. But yeah. Now, now, this goes back several years. Did you feel like free speech was stifled? People couldn't really fully express themselves, that there was a, a mantra or a communication style that was ex expected or... Was that in the atmosphere or did you feel like there was a lot of liberty to just speak your mind and, and, uh, and have divergent thought? Yeah. It, 
I mean, in 2010, it hadn't really seeped into other parts of the university at that point as much. But um, it was definitely like what what I saw in 2010 in women's studies is what everybody's seen right now. I mean, you would say something and then somebody would have a sort of emotional outburst. Well, like, you know, because they felt like they were... I I remember like there's this um, white man who was speaking and he said something about like, you know, kind of that idea of, you know, you work hard, you can achieve things. But then a a white woman in the class got upset because she was like, well, you can't say that because you're a white man. So it's, it's, it's that sort of like infighting and like people like reinforcing that ideology that, that sort of, free speech can't have that in those circles because the ideology rules all but and and it's just sad because that that's the way it is with with that sort of uh with that sort of group it's it's really interesting and and for you you yourself personally how did you break out of the ideology it obviously affected you uh what did you just what what was the turning point in you where you said look i'm just not going to do this dance anymore this is uh not who i am and, and and you've broken free from it when you, I'm sure you see, and you have a lot of peers that are stuck in it. Like, what what was the defining moments for you, and how did you wake up? Well, I think part of it was that I ended up developing CPTSD from activist circles, and so mm. I think that was kind of the start of it. And then I, but I still wanted to do the right thing, and that's that's kind of the problem with the ideology is that it's you're doing the right thing, you're helping people, and so like I, what pushed me over the edge was when the Black Lives Matter movements happened and. Portland, I was looking at this and I was like, I feel like I'm insane because I'm the only one that sees this as wrong, even though like I am like, and I'm also like, well, I, I think racism is bad. I think if cops are racist, that they should be held accountable. So I I had these feelings and I just felt like I was alone because I was like looking at our city being destroyed and I'm like, this is wrong. And so I was thankfully talking to, and this is probably the best thing a therapist has ever done for me. I was talking to this therapist and she said, you know what, here's Jimmy Dore and here's Tim Pool. Why don't you watch them and just like see what you think sort of thing. And so I, I started watching, watching them. And so it was like this introduction to new ideas. And then I, like I was on YouTube and the quartering popped up like on the, on the sidebar of recommendations. And I'm like, oh, who's this quartering guy? Like, let me check that out. And so then I started watching the quartering. And then I started watching um, You Are Here with Elijah Schaefer and Sidney Watson. And then I started watching Louder Crowder. So it was, um, oh, and then Actual Justice Warrior. So like all these getting introduced to new ideas was part of the way that I actually got out of this. And so that that's, I think, an important part is getting introduced to those ideas. And, and, and I think I'd be very interested in kind of like how deprogramming is, because that, that was almost like a, a self deprogramming for myself. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, because there's so many people on the far left. I'm not talking about, you know, center left people, but the far left radicals, they just cut any conservative out of their life. They don't want to hear anything, uh, an opposing opinion. They live in an echo chamber and they somehow think that this is reality and this is how the world operates. And it just doesn't, you know, especially if you get outside of America, you know, this stuff would never happen in the Islamic world or deep in uh, Latin America. It just just not there. And so I do have a question for you too on uh, uh, pronoun usage. That's a, a relevant thing that affects everybody. And uh, I was wondering what your thought is if, uh, if, if, if that should be something that should be honored and respected and, and followed, or is that something that, that should not, or, you know, or, or could you maybe bring some nuance to that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of, um, 
it's interesting because I mean, I, I went by she, they pronouns for, for the longest time, mm-hmm. but I never, I never forced anybody like what back then I just wanted like that, like on my forms or whatever. Like I just, I think it's so interesting, like listening to how other people deal with it because I was like, I, for me, the gender thing was a private issue. So I didn't want everybody knowing that I was non-binary and so like looking at that now I I don't think it's a good thing I I think that that sort of enforcing people to use the exact language um, is dangerous I think that um, and there's like and we're seeing this I think in Canada where it's just like you can be like like fined or you can be like um, I think it's fined if I remember right if if you do use the wrong pronouns so there's one case where I think a man lost custody of his child because he oh. did not, you know, in Canada. So that's pretty stark. Yeah, yeah. And I think that when it comes to free speech, which I am definitely an advocate for, uh, because partially as a detransitioner, I know that there are people trying to silence me. So it's it's important to have free speech. Like, even though, again, kind of like, you know, even though I don't agree with everything everybody else says, I think that that sort of silencing that discourse will cause issues. And the pronoun usage and not having people being able to discuss that openly and having to enforce that I think is like an extension of free free speech issues. I absolutely think this should be discussed and I, I can understand the pronoun usage like my name is Michael I prefer to be called Michael people call me Mike well I prefer Michael but you know I'll, I'll go with that so I can characterize it that way. But one of the things that really, uh, this whole thing, all this wokeism is, I think, an issue of identity, like who we are as human beings. And there's such an emphasis now in your gender identity. I identify as non-binary or male or female or even Black Lives Matter. I identify as black and my identity is black. Or And I'm not picking on black. I'm saying that whatever, we just focus on our identity identity, which is our demographic, our sexual preference. But humanity, it's so much deeper than that. I mean, there's gone is the idea, like I identify as a child of God, my my body, no matter what the color, my language or my gender attraction or how I feel is how I interact with the planet. And so like one of the things that I, I can't stand about the left's emphasis on the pronouns is, is not just, you know, whether I'll use pronouns or not, I can, I, I do. It's not that it's, it's a deeper thing where it's a litmus test of whether or not you love that person or value that person. You know, there's some people that don't want to use pronouns that are not assigned to the birth gender because some people really believe that they're uh, in the Abrahamic religions, that there is God and he made male and female and they have an, a duty to God more than a duty to man. And it's not that they don't love the person or don't, don't respect them, but they feel like it'd be a violation of their own conscience. Uh, some people don't want to learn a new language. It's confusing. Some people don't want to be told what to do and demanded. Uh, some people don't like compelled speech. And on the other side, for those that do use it, some people do it because, yeah, they truly want to honor that person and they want to respect them. And some people just do it to acquiesce. They don't believe it. They think it's bullshit, but I'll do it because, you know, I don't want to deal with a fight with you. And so to make that the litmus test of whether you value or love that person, I think is really askew and really misplaced. And so I can understand the argument from both sides. And I'm not saying don't do it or you shouldn't do it, but I think it's kind of unfair that it's it's so aggressive, you know? And so that's, those are just some of my, my thoughts. I was wondering if you anything else to say about that yeah it was kind of interesting to me that i was speaking well no i'm trying to remember no it, okay that's right yeah so i i was reading about one of the detransitioners um who who i'm like i would say probably an acquaintance 
with. Um, and she was talking about how she was misgendered, but it doesn't bother her because she knows she's a woman. And I think that that's part of it is that when you feel secure in yourself, you yes. don't have to make others um, kind of like, I don't know how to describe, but like pretty much like kind of appease you, right? So you don't have to make these other people agree that you are like this gender. Like if you truly feel... Um, that you're non-binary, then you don't need anybody to, um, you don't need anybody to, um, to affirm that for you if you are truly that thing. And so I think that that's part of the issue is that there's like this insecurity and these people are looking for, for outside support and for people to, you know, to, to make them feel better when it's like they need to work on, on themselves and really like get that down. Because when you, when you are secure in yourself and you're confident, then you don't need that outside reinforcement for that. That's a great point. And, and I, I, I don't have gender dysphoria, but if somebody said, okay, you're a woman or you're a girl, I'm like, like, oh yeah, whatever, you know, cause obviously I don't feel like a woman and I don't present as one and it wouldn't bother me. And if they continue to do it, I'd be like, ah, oh, oh, shut up. You know, I, I, it wouldn't affect my personality. I wouldn't be so angry about it. So I think there is, it's, it's your identity. It's like what you're secure in. I was actually talking to, uh, I had a, on the show previously a, a detransitioner and uh, she said that she does not believe that we should use gender pronouns because it reinforces gender dysphoria, which I thought was an interesting perspective as well. I didn't mean to sidetrack into that, but that is a very relevant cultural practical thing that's uh, that's germane to everybody listening to this podcast that is around the university system or especially urban centers or uh, in the corporate world. And so what should our response be? Uh, and as a detransitioner, I, I was really curious to hear your your input on that as well. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting point of that it reinforces it because I mean, that's, that's a possibility is that it is reinforcing that. I mean, if you get told the wrong pronoun, like that's going to to throw you off too. So yeah, I do think that that's an interesting point. Um, for, for how to deal with it in the corporate world. I mean, when I've, I mean, even when I believed I was non-binary, they would like want everybody to say their pronouns. And I didn't want to like I was feeling that it was outing myself and so I just wouldn't say my pronouns that's how I dealt with it you know and I mean it's it's difficult like with with the corporate world but I I don't think that it really has a place there just because it is you know it's again it's that sort of like reinforcing like you have to use this for me and then it just it's versus you know like if if somebody you know if, if somebody's presenting a certain way and then they might naturally get that pronoun but it's just like it's bringing too much attention to it, I feel like. And I know that that's going to be tricky for some people, but I don't think it has any place in the corporate world. Interesting. And so in summary, I uh, want to give you the final word. And I just want to commend you for uh, the amazing journey you've been on and the things that you've overcome and the things you've dealt with in your life. Uh, and I just find you to be a fascinating human being. I, I, you're a beautiful woman. You are an incredibly articulate person. You're compassionate, you're caring, and uh, I'm just really impressed with your character as a, as a, as a young woman. And so uh, I'd like you to just have the final word and let people know how they can get a hold of you and uh, if there's anything that you'd like to just add to our conversation, and I'll, I'll let you close up. Yeah, I just want to say thank you for having me on and bringing this 
really needed discussion around, you know, gender ideology, critical race theory, critical gender theory about because we really do need to discuss this. And it has really taken a hold of many institutions. So yeah, I just want to say thank you for having me on. And, um, you know, you can reach me at um, have a couple of I have an old my links, which has all my social media, but I can also be found on Twitter with which is um, at get better tweets. I'm, I have a YouTube channel, which is the get better researcher and find me there. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Camille. May God bless you and may he prosper you and you have a hundred percent fruitfulness and healing in all aspects of your life. Thank you again. Thank you.